employ smart people. Most people, even if they're not exactly trained to do the thing that you need them to do, if they're smart, if they're intellectually curious, if they're hungry, if they are team players, then amazing things will happen. Wow, so even as like managing director, you have to sort of do a bit of that sales, account management, talk to customers um, and do all those things. Yeah, and I, th I mean, I think that's pretty common in ad tech, to be honest, when I was at Google, it was pretty much the same. Now, obviously at Google, because, you know, I was looking after many bigger customers, um, then the types of people you're talking to and the conversations you have are different. So they tend to be more partnership-based, strategic-based, um, you know, talking about what the two companies can do together. So if I look back at the time, I was looking after like the big four banks, you know, like Brian Hartzell, when he was heading up Westpac, is not going to want to talk about, you know, what's Google's latest uh, search products and campaign settings. <laughs> he wouldn't even have a clue um, because his world is so much bigger than that. Uh, but I think I've, I've always believed you have to kind of, um, you know, keep reasonably close to what's going on on the ground, not in the minute detail, but I think it's important to like, understand what the challenges are. And therefore, when you go and see customers, even if you're having a different level conversation with, let's say, the CMO, you still want to be able to, as the rest of the team is sitting there and discussing why isn't the lower funnel retargeting campaign returning the same ROI as it used to last year, you still need to be able to talk to that and to talk to that pain point they have in their business. Because especially in retail, you know, like the rag trade is, you know, lives day by day. They look at their sales day by day, you know, econ businesses often hour by hour, and they notice, you know, changes in return on ad spend and things like that. So you need to be able to um, convincingly sort of walk in their shoes and, and then also walk in your own company's shoes and, and be able to sort of understand where sometimes the two are not quite aligned. And then you have to kind of be honest and say, yeah, we've probably drifted away from what what you need us to be. So let's recenter on what you need us to be. Let's fix that issue for you. And then let's talk about some, maybe some like bigger trends that are happening. Um, and it's that, I think it's that pivot from, you know, macro to micro and micro back to macro that I, I think they appreciate that it's, you're not just wafting in and glad handing um, and, you know, just sort of cutting ribbons, um, you're there kind of understanding their pain and also the, the you know, the, the failings of your own company. And uh, the good thing about retail is they're not, not afraid to tell you. <laughs> Interesting. So what sort of your role as an MD? Like what does a managing director do? Like what's your KPI? Is your KPI increase the amount of revenue that comes from Australia Critio or yeah? Probably speaking, yes. Yeah. So my main KPI is, you know, take the Australian New Zealand share of of the revenue responsibility for Critio and grow that by X amount. Now, I think when you're in Australia, the amount of money that we're going to make is never going to be, you're never going to be the top country for revenue. Because we're not like a developing market, you won't be the top country for growth. So it's, it's getting that um, sort of, compromise between the two of saying we can give you above mature market growth rates because we're still a country that where the population is increasing the economy does pretty well it's a rich country um so we can definitely punch above our weight in terms of like revenue per you know population um but then there's also a 
you know, so there's a kind of total revenue component, which isn't shabby for Australia. It's, you know, it's, um, uh, I think that's pretty true for most companies around the world. And then you've got that sort of growth element. And I, yeah, you're not going to be that 50% growth market typically. But during COVID, Australia was behind on e-com compared to most peer countries. So we probably had most to grow and we were we were the fastest growing market in during COVID um, because of probably the relatively low level of e-com adoption in Australia. And, you know, most people go to Westfields and local shopping centers and stuff. Um, but then the position I think Australia has, and this isn't just applied to my business, uh, I think we have an ability to like test and trial and innovate here. We're a small enough market, we can get things done. Um, there's a reasonable concentration of businesses in most sectors so that you can go, you know, you might sort of say, okay, as the banking sector of Australia is, you know, it's big for Australia, but in a global scale, you might say not so much. But actually, you know, when I look at the big four, you know, people like Combank and ANZ are world-class leading in their field because I think they innovate, you know, that the, if you've got the Combank app, you know how amazing it is compared to, you know, I also have a, a global uh, bank that I, I have um, and their app is nowhere near as good. And I think that's the ability of Australia to be able to sort of innovate and push stuff. Um, and in retail, which is a, that's still a predominant um, part of our customer base, that hasn't typically been the case. I don't think Australian retail is necessarily been at the forefront for e-com and digital marketing, but that, there are complete exceptions in that. And you see some really good companies um, who are really uh, eager to innovate. And it's relatively easy for them to get that happening. Whereas if you go to a UK, German, French, US company, they're so much bigger, they're getting all of that signed off can sometimes take a lot longer either from our side, you know, as in like the, the vendor side or from the, the customer side. So that's that's the way I see it. And I say to my team, we don't have to be the fastest growing. We don't have to have the biggest revenue, but we should be like the most innovative and give things a go. Because I think Aussies are reasonably open to new ideas. Being a small, physically large country, but small population, the other side of the world, I, I think, you know, coming in as a Brit, then I think Aussies spend a lot of time looking for best practice from other markets, um, which I think is fine. It's then about how do we actually make best practice here? Because some of those things, like when I was working at Google on uh, Google Pay, or what was Android Pay before, you know, we were the sort of joint second market to launch after the US because we had high adoption of um, contactless pay. It was relatively easy to do the deals with a small number of banks here and cover a large percentage of the market. Um, and there was a lot of innovation in the, that sort of sort of fintech, uh, you know, transaction account banking space. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of a lot of what I do is trying to drive drive that growth. And then, you know, I, I'm not the person in our platform setting up campaigns. I'll be honest. I I can go in there. I I do sometimes go in there to kind of find out answers to questions that I when my team aren't around. But a lot of what I do is trying to set the team up, you know, either structurally in terms of, you know, the, the org chart, um, the mission, uh, you know, understand from them what they see as the ways that we can get growth and, and therefore achieve my mission. Uh, and in, in doing so, try and create a, you know, happy team that doesn't, we don't have too much churn. And I think we've been reasonably successful at that. We don't, we haven't, we don't have a huge amount of staff churn, which is unusual in this industry. 
Interesting. So on a macro level, what would you focus on that would increase growth? Would it be building more sales teams? Would it be doing a lot of brand awareness sort of campaigns for Critio? Would it be educating the market and teaching them how to be more innovative when it comes to retail? I mean, yeah, I mean, good questions, Andy. Um, so, I mean, principally, I think you you can get growth in a number of different ways. One is looking at your current business and exact same customer set. So we've, we've been very, uh, yeah, sort of planted in the retail sector because the product works supremely well there. So you say, okay, so how can we, you know, increase our penetration of our existing client base? And therefore, the way that you can do that is either you're underpenetrated and therefore persuading people that they could be investing more and getting more out of you. Um, so that's you know one thing that you can do. Another one is by having more products, and, and Creo has got a lot more products in the last since I joined. You know, it was more or less a one product company when I joined, more or less, um, and is now a multi-product company. So you can go back to the same customers and say we've got more solutions for you that can assist your business, um, or you can go into other sectors. So, you know, we can go into like, let's say finance or education or auto sectors, which we've been, you know, either not present at all or, or under represented because maybe we didn't have the, the focus there, the skills, talent, or maybe the right to play in that space at the time with the, the product suite that we had. So you've got that choice as well, or you can kind of go for channels that you've not um, looked at before and markets that you've not looked at before. So. In our business, we were very direct to business, you know, B2B direct uh, relationships with some agencies who were there, like media agencies who were there sort of perhaps like incidentally to that relationship. So um, a good example of that would have been maybe like the good guys. The main relationship that we had was with the good guys client, but then they had Dentsu as an agency and they've they've subsequently changed that too. To, uh, agency called Halftime. So you have those sort of incidental relationships, but, but as a channel to market, we weren't particularly agency friendly. And so there's two things that happened. Number one, I saw that as an opportunity. So, you know, like we can probably double our market share if we become agency friendly and focus a team on agency sales. And the second thing you need to have, your business needs to actually be interesting to agencies. And so, you know, can they add value to your offering for the client? Can they make money out of it? And are you a good and easy and trustworthy partner to work with? So then you need to explain all those things, which then comes to your, your third point, which is, you know, do we do branding and marketing and, and, and push ourselves and, and get our name out there? And so with the agency community, they're pretty across most sort of vendors and technologies and options, but not intimately. And so we had a big job to do there. So that's about going around those groups, you know, engaging with them, listening to them, understanding what they need, and then going back and saying, okay, this is what we hear from you. This is who we are. And a lot of them, it's part of their remit to go and, and constantly scan the market for, you know, best in class uh, propositions. Um, and then the other part of that is, yeah, be out there, be more present. And so you, you know, you and I connected with each other at the IAB debate session. That's the sort of thing I think that the Critio didn't traditionally get involved in. It wasn't a full sort of, I guess, ad tech industry um, player or representative because we had our little niche to play in. And I think it was a bit too comfortable for us to sit just in our own little space and try and, and eke out as much of that space as we could. 
which is very much like going and talking to direct clients and, and saying, you know, do you want to increase your online sales, et cetera, we can help. And so now we're more than that. And we, we've got more upper funnel products. We, we realize that we need to be more part of the ecosystem. And so therefore we, you know, need to, we need to be out there present and talking to people, meeting people in the industry like you and, um, the guys from the IAB and, you know, agency folk and direct clients and things like that, because if you don't, if you're not keeping your ear to the ground and, and being in those opportunity moments to, you know, make a new connection, somebody else is, or if nothing else, then you, you're not, you're unlikely to be able to expand your business without being out there and seeing what's going on. Yeah, I think that was a really smart move because at Debate Club, it was like a really small niche of sort of high level sort of um, audience and everyone was highly targeted and in, in that space and everyone was in marketing. So it was like a highly targeted sort of sponsorship. And I think that was a really smart move. No, thanks. And and look, those opportunities, they don't have to cost a lot of money. You know, you, I, anyone can organize a kind of meetup. And if you've, if you've got the right um, sort of network and audience, then you can pull people together. And I think what I love about this industry is that on the whole, I would say 90 you know, odd percent of people are out there continually learning because the sector changes all the time. Technology is changing all the time. Trends in marketing are changing all the time. Um, in a way that that's not, you know, I, I started my life in the automotive sector. That a lot of those mega trends are, are quite slow and big, like now moving to electric vehicles and things like that. It's not like month by month. In our sector, it is. There's something new around the corner. There's another challenge. There's a new competitor. There's a new like fad. Um, and so you need to sort of keep on top of those things. And therefore, it's not. It's never boring. Um, and yeah, it's 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 good to you know go out there sign up to the newsletters, go, go along to these sort of events, you know, watch the Ted talks, all this sort of stuff. Like educate yourself because it's, it's not just, it's good for business. It's fun doing so. And you know, you keep yourself reasonably fresh. Um, and I'm not as fresh as many, many people out there who we spend a lot more time, you know, out there connecting and going to every single conference and opportunity. Um, so I, you know, from your perspective, what's the what are the things that you see that the differences between you know marketing approaches and and the way that people kind of connect? So I think right now a lot of like LinkedIn has been surprisingly like popping off. Like I was surprised. Like I kept hearing LinkedIn, LinkedIn, and then I sort of went on it, and then there's like a really strong network effect where they're posting content. Friends of friends are seeing it. Um, all the recruiters are on LinkedIn, and surprisingly, all these sort of corporate people, business people, they're on it like all day long, and, and it's an easy way to get responses. And I'm getting people, professionals, podcast guests, they're getting back to me. Like high-level people are replying to me on LinkedIn, where I would never get a response on email, or Instagram, or any other platform. So I think LinkedIn is a really amazing place where it's like a hub with just highly professional people. Um, I've been trying to figure out and play around with the LinkedIn ads. I haven't figured it out yet. The CPMs are like maybe two to three times more expensive than Facebook, but I think it's worth it because the audience is more targeted. Um, and I think right now LinkedIn is still untapped. Like I recently found out that you can just scrape emails using tools and I could literally, if I want to target say, um, people in the corporate sales field um, that are in Australia and there's like 
10,000, I could get a list of 10,000 sort of highly targeted qualified people to just cold email out to. Um, so that was the biggest like hub I see, I guess. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I, 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 get, I do get a lot of like industry updates and, you know, innovations and kind of snippets and news from LinkedIn. So in my feed, it's, I would say I get a, one or two requests to connect with people like per day. You know, many of them might be really, you know, sort of random speculative people from, you know, emerging markets around the world. Uh, and it's probably, you know, they're getting more out of the connection than you, you are likely to. Um, but as you're going in there, sort of, you know, screening those people, you know, I tend to be, I hope I'm, you know, reasonably generous and happy for people to sort of connect into my network. Um, but then that's when you see the news feed and you find out like people that you kind of in, in your network, what are they up to? And let's be honest, we're all busy people. I don't keep in contact with every single person that I've ever met in my professional career. Um, so it's good to kind of just be reminded of like, oh yeah, that's what happened to, you know, person X. Um, but also, yeah, you, you know, today it was, you know, news about the um, Google I.O. conference and launches and things like that. There was, you know, an article um, about, you know, like Jason Tonelli talking about um, how the uh, Razorfish brand is being resurrected within Publicis, etc. And those are, you know, really useful um, snippets that come along. And then as well as like from people like yourself, where there's like, hey, you're invited to attend you know, this like, you know, I webinar, dial in, whatever it happens to be. Um, and those things, you know, some of them, you can't attend everything and you can't participate in everything, but something, you know, one in 50, or whatever really catches your eye. And you're like, yeah, you know what? I'll, I'll sign myself up for that. That's probably, it's, I'm, you know, I, again, I believe you need to be, you know, reasonably um, actively involved. And then, you know, for those who know me decently well, I, you know, I post a reasonable number of articles on there. Uh, I don't know how many people are reading them, um, but it makes me feel feel important with myself and being able to tell myself at night that I that at least I'm important to myself. <laughs> yeah, I think at first when I went on LinkedIn, it was like a bit weird or spammy. Everyone sort of had personas. You would get all these spam messages. But as I've digged into it more and more, I can really see how this is feeling like Facebook 2008, where people are going on LinkedIn to share what they're doing, share the recent event they went to. And I'm seeing people literally join the platform, post once or twice, get the sort of engagement they're looking for, and now they're posting more and more oftenly. So I'm seeing people convert from a casual LinkedIn user to an avid LinkedIn user. And that's, the, that's not something I've seen. Like Facebook has sort of died off. Instagram is slowly sort of falling off and, and LinkedIn is sort of on this uptrend um, and I'm definitely feeling that. Yeah, well, but you know one thing at the start of COVID I thought was one of the most beautiful uh, and thoughtful things I've ever seen in my uh, professional career. Um, there was a person who was having to let their team go because they, you know, a slug of business in COVID, they didn't know whether they were going to survive. And this person wrote, you know, I'm, I'm unfortunately having to make this decision to let, you know, the, these people go. However, these people are absolutely amazing. And if any of you have an opportunity for them, please, you know, if I can use this as an opportunity to, you know, find another, uh, you know, career for them, um, then, you know, that will make me feel better about myself and it will help these people. And I just thought it was a really lovely thing to do to actually use it for something that's, you know, a, a real calamitous situation and to just leverage the platform 
and and your voice out there and your network to say, look, hey, I can't help these, you know, these people in my team, but maybe you can. And I, you know, you've got to believe that they, those people had a much better chance of finding a new role um, so during a tough time. And also, I think it just shows the. I don't know, like the character of the person who did that. And I thought, you know, if I have thought of doing that, um, and, and I'm not as thoughtful as that person, um, I, I would have, uh, I would have pat patted myself on the back. Um, I thought it was just a, just an amazing way to use, you know, use a, a platform for good. Most definitely, and I think the community is sort of built for that. Where I think a post like that would just go viral on LinkedIn because that's sort of the correct market fit for that type of content and. It's still small enough where you can do something like that, and and it does create a small dent within that day within LinkedIn. Whereas you can't have that impact on these other social media platforms anymore. No, yeah, that's a good point. It's it's a it's a small enough community, as you say, because it's a sort of self-selecting sort of professional network, um, which by and large doesn't get too exploited. I mean, you do, as I say, you do tend to. Um, get a few of those sort of outreach. I'm just trying to flog you something and with no context, with no relevance to your business. You know, the number of people who contact me to say, you know, we can help develop your website. And it's like, well, I work for a global company. It's a B2B company. So that obviously our website is probably a less important part of our business anyway. And I, and you you should be able to work out that I probably don't manage it um, being a French company, you know, listed on the NASDAQ and I'm just the MD of the Australian business. So you see a bit of that. People do sort of use it just for spamming. Um, but I, I'd say that's the minority, or certainly that's been my experience. On that topic, so platforms like Facebook, Google, LinkedIn, they have their sort of own audience. They have a platform that attracts a large amount of audience and they're able to run ads on their platform and basically sell their audience to sort of advertisers. Whereas Critio, you guys sort of have to arbitrage where you guys don't have your own platform and you have to make basically the, the split whereas google facebook they just make a hundred percent how do you compete with those big guys if that's the case um yeah you're right um when yeah any any sort of destination place like you know TikTok, facebook instagram google etc has the the massive benefit of having sort of house inventory um, obviously, it's not completely free because they, they've got to pay for an army of engineers and, and the staff and everything that you know comes out of that. But still, you're right. Um, in the case of display, if you look at sort of, I guess, what where Google might be a bit different to Facebook is mostly Google is paying other people. You know, they, they are arbitraging between a, a host of small, in you know, from well, some very big publishers, you know, like News Corp, whatever, all the way down to, you know, mum and pop shops that might get... 20 impressions a year, whatever the minimum threshold is. Um, so they have the GDN and they have like the sort of the, I guess the B2B version of that, which is um, a real, real kind of core enterprise version of that, which is authorized buyers used to be known as addicts. Um, so yeah, they make, they make a cut on that um, to be able to share between those publishers and then people who buy that inventory. And then they make that inventory also available via, via authorized buyers to people like ourselves and we can on sell that. I think in any arbitrage model, it's how much value you're adding. You know, in the same way that a supermarket is adding value to someone who makes bread and puts it in plastic wrappers, and then you buy it and consume it, that the value that they're adding is, you know, bringing it to you and curating that, and negotiating a good price 
you know, bringing their logistical talent so it's always in stock, fresh, et cetera, et cetera. So they're able to make a markup on that product. And that is fundamentally how we can take um, Facebook's product or, or, or the GDN, uh, the authorized buyer's product, and add value. So our value that we add is the technology we have in terms of which of their in which parts of their inventory pool are we interested in buying because it's not all of it um so you know we've got you know intellectual property in our ai engine that can that works out like which are the right environments to bid for rather than all of them just only bid in certain environments um which users are worth bidding for because there's some people who never click on ads and there's certain certainly people who click on ads but never buy off the back of that um, so which, you know, users to go for, and then in, in our case, in the traditional product we used to sell, like what products to show them and then the associated products that they might be interested in. So you're adding a level of, um, IP and curation on top of a commodity buy, which is, you know, impressions that, that, um, uh, you know, a publisher is basically selling. Um, and so, you know, as well as us having some direct relationships with core publishers like, you know, Gumtree and News, News and, uh, and Channel 7 and realestate.com.au and things like that. So, you know, maybe we're getting at a slightly more advantageous price or uh, having a direct connect with that business rather than going through another, um, you know, exchange like um, authorized buyers. So that's where we add value and therefore that's where we can make margin. But of course, you're only, you know, your margin is therefore always being called into question. And, and your value is always being called into question. And that's why typically uh, Critio, unlike Google and Facebook, is rapidly held to a sort of ROI, ROAS, whatever you want to call it, number. Because there's always the sense of, well, what are you what are you actually delivering? If I spend a dollar here, what are you giving me back? Um, and you know, if we if we end up buying expensive inventory or inventory that people don't click on or or ads that don't convert then that's you know that creates a problem for us and so that's what keeps us on our toes which means our our ip needs to be that much better than our competitors which it is and i, I genuinely think that i'm not just being a, a you know company loyalist uh, in saying that but when we go head to head with our competitors we generally create better results which is ironic given that yeah google and facebook have have that inventory as house inventory but they still they will have, they will have segmented that into a kind of like a wholesale arrangement that they make one part of the money in, but then other parts of the business are adding, like for you know GDN, um, they're adding like again an extra margin as we are for that extra IP, which is not just the can I find the inventory and buy it, but can I make smart decisions and add value to the decision making process and create an outcome. Interesting. One thing that you brought up that I it totally slipped my mind is you're right. Google is sort of arbitraging because. They pay their sort of bloggers, they pay the YouTubers a portion of the ad spend. So they're basically arbitraging just like sort of any arbitraging sort of ad tech company. And that just makes platforms like Facebook, LinkedIn, TikTok all more powerful because they don't really pay their audiences. Um, yeah, you're, you're right. And yeah. I think that's why... Google traditionally has not like the biggest part of its business is not the display business because it has, you know, search is, you know, it's aside from the overheads of running Google is all profits because it's an owned and operated property. Um, when you go to YouTube, then because it only sells that either direct or via DB360, then it's probably in a slightly more comfortable position. 
um, and it is a it's an owned destination, even if the you know the royalties have to be shared with the um, content creators. When you come to sort of let's say the publishing network, um, so the, the GDN network, then then that's a real commodity type of um, buy that they are having to sort of share without bringing a huge amount of extra value other than just the buying and selling platform. Um, whereas, yeah, so Facebook, TikTok, Pinterest, etc., they're all you know they sell you know display on their websites directly. And again, like Google has with search, their only cost is the cost of running the platform. Now, do you think platforms like Facebook, TikTok, LinkedIn would benefit from a model similar to YouTube where the creators would get paid a royalty or a cut? Or why do you think they haven't done that? Well, I think the nature of video creation was very much that like you'll place ads in that directly like insert it like you know in stream um and the relationship sort of with that type of community is more analogous to like a sort of tv type of buy and the creators are are creating sort of unique content now you could say that would be true for tiktok so they do have to share revenue so that's a you know just correct myself there. They do have to share revenue with people who are creating videos and monetizing their videos in the same way that YouTube does. Um, but if you look at YouTube, that is where the the point of kind of um, uniqueness arises is in the creators putting that content up and then having to share it. Now that could be you and I creating content, or it could be one of the massive you know uh, media houses posting their content up on their website. You know, like you know uh 21st century fox or you know viacom or whoever it happens to be and they want their you know the amount of money that they want back they want a, a, a like a professional return if you're a mom and pop shop and you're just placing ads your content is that might be your unique content um but that ad that you're placing is sort of on your content and sort of very incidental to it uh, whereas the and it's and it sort of follows more like the newspaper model, whereas YouTube has sort of followed more of that TV type model. Um, so I think they are they are kind of different. People, it's easy to click on a publisher's site away from a site that you've only read read a short article on, and then go off and and browse on an ad. Uh, in that TV environment like YouTube, they've got to be persuaded to kind of come out from what they're watching, which is sort of more passive entertainment. So there, I think the the formats dictate a slightly different approach to monetization, and you know when I was at Google, you know there is a tension between a bunch of people at YouTube who want people just to carry on watching more and more clips and seeing more and more ads in, in to, interspersed with those clips, versus another team who are trying to get people to click on ads within the you know the, that stream and then come out of the YouTube environment, and that's a I think that's a tough tougher call. And therefore, it's a, it is a different sort of way of monetizing, or the, or the format of monetizing, than than a, a relatively static web page. And I think one just went down that newspaper route, and the other one's gone down more of a TV route. Interesting, because recently I've been sort of going into a dilemma where one, I'm realizing the power and the value from users, whether they're free or paid. Um, where Stunning.com, we 
previously sold a program, a course that's very in-depth that taught people everything from e-commerce to marketing to Facebook ads, drop shipping, and the program would be anywhere from three to five thousand dollars. Now I was sort of slowly pivoting to like a um, free-to-play model where people can get modules for free. They just have to put in the work and complete modules to unlock the next one. And we've added in referral mechanisms. And we're sort of scaling the product down from $5,000 down to zero with these sort of hypotheses that with the referral mechanisms, flywheel effects will kick in. Um, and since it's free, it's a much easier sell through word of mouth since it's free and it's a $5,000 product that's now free. And hopefully if the free model reaches a hundred times more people than the paid model, then it would have paid off. Now we just have to test this to see, but um, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, look, there's a whole um, sort of, you know, freemium, premium subscription, um, you know, choice to be made out there. And if you look at, let's say what happened in streaming services, you've got, you know, what came out of commercial ad funded TV, like, you know, that was funded by soap operas and things like that. So an ad, completely ad funded uh, TV network did very, very, very well. And then it sort of then spun back around to like a Netflix, um, more like cable subscription type model. Um, but in Netflix example, removing all the ads. And I think you've seen now as you reach a, as in that case, high quality, unique um, to them content, um, the people are willing to pay for. And then as you've seen time go on and the proliferation of those types of channels, then you're getting more and more like ad funded kind of stuff coming back in. Um, and, you know, it's, it, you can end up in that sort of world of either, you know, you can be very black and white and say we are only subscription focused and without ads, or you can be in that world where it's all like it's ads and the whole thing's free or you can be in that half world like so let's say you pay for the economist subscription you've got most of it is coming most of the ad, most of the revenue is probably coming from the subscription service but then there's still ads that appear in that environment and so i think if you carry that into whichever particular model you know whether it's like an app that is giving you free content but then to access better facilities or to remove ads you pay i think you have to different different sectors are going to be able to pull that off more easily than others and the uniqueness of your content and the value that you have i think makes a big difference as to whether anyone is prepared to pay for it at all um so if you look at um let's say um the afr here the afr has unique content that about, about business that other, other journalists are not covering typically um, it's also going to a community that has high disposable income. In many cases, um, it can be, you know, either, you know, set against taxes or paid for by the company, et cetera. So the AFR has much a greater right to be able to charge for its content, even though it would still carry ads than let's say um, the Daily Mail, which has got much more lifestyle and celebrity gossip and all that type of content. So it's harder for, though, if you're not, if you don't have really unique content, but you're just aggregating a whole load of new stories from around the planet that you haven't paid an army of journalists for, or that, that all of the intrinsic nature of the story doesn't have any real deep value beyond, you know, entertainment, then 
you're going to struggle. You need to sort of work out, you know, how much people are likely to pay for it, like for anything. What's what's the demand? If there's strong demand, then perhaps the subscription model, you know, works. If people, you know, if it's something that's new and they don't quite understand it, that sort of freemium model of start off either, you know, number of, of articles that you can read and then you have to start paying weeks of, you know, days or weeks of, of free content um, or like a really segregated, you can access the sort of more generic, easier to find elsewhere content for free. But as soon as you want to um, get dip inside the um, the really unique stuff, then you have to pay. And I think I, I think each each situation is um, you know probably deserves its own kind of approach. But then equally, you look at something like Netflix or Disney Plus and Paramount, all those things. A lot of them are looking to see whether there's an, another ad funded model out there that can supplement and maybe appeal to a different demographic. You know, not everyone can afford four or five different subscription streaming services. So I think you'll see a bit more of a rise of AVOD come back in. So a long answer and, and probably not a very full answer to your question. but Yeah, because I think with my experience, I've learned that with each one of those models, it would work if you put in a lot of effort, tweak the things, tweak the conversion rates and figure out the value per customer. You can make it work. Um, but it's sort of a bit of like you're sort of fighting the way you're really pushing against the wall um, to find the perfect model for your business would the answer just to be test everything and find one way it just clicks much easier than the rest of the things yeah I, in most cases I think you can model what it, what you know can happen so if you have let's say a hundred thousand people accessing your content for free and and then maybe I don't know, I'll go to the other extreme 10 if you charge you know a thousand bucks a year then you can probably draw the slider and you know create the graph and say okay where is the you know if I charge you ten dollars a year how many people does that wipe out and then go and do some tests um one um uh really inspirational speaker that um, I've seen a couple of times now in the US and he he teaches at Stanford University in the Singularity uh, University there um, and he talks about um, like prototyping so rather than prototyping in this case where you might sort of try like do a test and learn um, with real subscriptions and you know like it's it's make, makes like a real um, you know impact to your business decision is you can sort of try and do stuff which let's say you create a web page and and then like a pop-up and sort of says you know you can access this you know the first hundred users can access this unique content for you know 50 bucks a year and then when you click on it even if you haven't got any of that unique content um if that's not what you've got but you're thinking how do i work out then you click on it and say oh you know unfortunately you, you didn't make it into the um, 100 but here's a you know $5 Coles voucher, um, you know, whatever it happens to be, you, you can do something at very, you can test things at a very, very low cost and very, very quickly um, and get to your answer faster than by doing very large built out tests that need really high statistical um, significance. Um, and I thought that was really fascinating. So the example that we, we worked on was, um, you know, McDonald's wants to launch, you know, see whether there's interest in selling, you know, spaghetti bolognese what do you do? And, you know, we came up with different answers and, and the best I think people got to was, 
you know, you just pick one store and then you would, you know, have some spaghetti bolognese and you see what you can charge for it and change the price. And he said, no, just put it up on the screen. It doesn't cost you anything to add it to the menu. And then when people come and order it and say, look, it's been so popular, it's sold out, but here we are, you can get a half price Big Mac instead. Um, and it costs you virtually nothing. And you and you can do that in every store. So you can get to a larger sample for very little cost. Um, and then you've got the answer very quickly um, in the same way that, you know, Tesla would be out there with a new model and looking for deposits uh, and therefore you know it's announced at a tesla event they say you know put your deposits down and that helps them gauge interest like real genuine interest not just people saying that they're interested but actually people putting a thousand bucks down or whatever interested that gets them much closer to knowing whether it's worth investing in that launching that model or not i was like that's yeah smart now talking about tesla how like they they do zero marketing and zero sales and I guess Elon Musk's sort of hypothesis is this whole sector, which is usually a giant sector for sales and marketing, if you just put all that budget towards more developers and bettering the product itself, the word of mouth would kick in and you would generate more sort of results than if you went ahead and cut the sort of product team and sort of invested in sales. and. That was all a hypothesis and it sort of paid off and it's a pretty big and risky move. It is. And, you know, I guess he's not the first person to have been like in this case, you know, there's a cult of personality. So he is the brand as well as the proof points behind the product. And, you know, there are other people like Richard Branson who've kind of pulled off, you know, similar stunts um, without and, and either challenge the distribution model. So, you know, um, going direct to consumer rather than through agents or dealers or whatever. Um, but also, you know, a la Steve Jobs, he is a showman and able to convey the product um, exceptionally well himself. And so I think he can do that. You're right. I think he's ballsy as well. Uh, and I think people, he's been consistently ballsy on a number of things over a long period of time that people probably believe in him like with Steve Jobs is sort of making very very bold claims um and there's a, a you know I know he's not American originally but you know it's an he's an American now and I think it's, Americans have a lot of belief in sort of faith and you know the sort of um the the way that they grow up is sort of you know believe in the vision and believe in faith and the word of the pastor and the local church and things like that I think carries a lot of weight and and it, I think can be very very effective if you're if you're on the flip side and you are an introvert and you're you're struggling with that and you've just come up with you know and then for example i know that like honda in australia have decided to sort of move away from a sort of concessionary model with dealers to an agent model where there's no price negotiation um it's still kind of the same setup but like mercedes like they've done is like it's a and like let's say mile do with appliances or apple do with authorized sellers they're not really able to discount or there's very strict rules about discounting. Um, you have to be prepared, I think, to where the consequences of that. And if you started as a business that where you're expecting to be able to go in and buy a Honda Civic and, and negotiate 5% off the, off the price, if suddenly you don't, you do have to expect that your sales will fall. Now, will you eventually get back to original position or will your total profits be greater? That's that's a tough one, and I know that uh, at the moment, you know, Honda's being kind of pulled out for a, a dramatic drop in sales. I, I don't know what Honda's margins are like before or after to know whether that 
let's say 30% drop in sales, it, you know, equates to still like total either the same or better margin on a lower number of volumes, volume of units. But um, I do know in the car industry, having come from it, that you also need to keep a factory going. So whilst the, the uh, sales and marketing team at Honda Australia might be making the same money total, I, I don't know if they are or not, but I can assure you that the um, factory in Thailand or Japan, if they're pumping out less units, the price of the components will start to go up because it's all it's all about volume game. So, you know, you, you are in that sort of, um, it can work. I think there are some unique examples like Virgin, like Tesla, like Apple, um, where the, the marketing is is not being so much of a lever as the, like the PR, if you like. Yeah, so I'm like trying to think like, most companies they'll put in like a dollar in marketing and they would expect like a dollar seventy. It's consistent, it's reliable, it's consistent cash flow. Whereas people like Elon Musk and Tesla, they're hypothesizing that every dollar they put into product and engineering, they might get three dollars out in revenue and word of mouth. Um, yeah, it's it's a bit risky. And and another thing I just figured out was once you go down one path it's nearly impossible to switch and go to the other. Like a car company can now, can't switch over. Yeah, and, and I've seen that before. So like there's a there's a case, when I worked at um, Peugeot in the UK, um, the sister company Citroen, um, for a period of time, it had, I wouldn't say an, a, a week, but it, it had a, a lineup of cars that was sort of dominated at the sort of the younger, smaller, you know, like smaller cars at cheaper price points. Um, and it found a formula which really, really worked well, which, you know, I've, you know, the GST, like VAT over there, um, used to be 17 and a half percent, I think it's 20% these days. And they came up with this, you know, we'll give, give a big discount, you know, whichever particular, you know, recession or whatever it was, it was like, we'll give you, save the VAT, nice and catchy message. So then suddenly they're like pumping out units of Citroen Saxos, which is, you know, sort of the equivalent of Toyota Yaris or whatever. Um, and they were pumping these cars out uh, and hitting their goals and they were feeling great. Now, you know, was Citroen making a huge amount of money out of that? I don't know. I'd probably it'd be marginal because that's a lot of discount to give away. But I can tell you what, when you come along with nice product that's, that's nice and fresh and you're the Citroen dealer going, this is exactly what we want, then suddenly Citroen saying, I want full price for this car. That is a tough game because they built themselves as a brand where you go to get a bargain. And once you start that game, it is a, it can be a very, very difficult drug to come off. And so I think, you know, we've got quite a few retailers who in early COVID, particularly bricks and mortar retailers in, in sort of um, apparel and footwear, um, they then started to go down a discounting path because at the start of COVID, we all thought the world was going to implode. So they've gone off down this discounting path. And now we're back into, like, let's say, I don't want to call this a post-COVID world, but let's say we're in a world where we're now living with the virus and, and it doesn't seem to be having um, the, the level of impact and, and drama that was earlier. Then they're trying to sort of wind back those discounts. But if you've spent two years always being on sale and constantly bombarding people with emails saying 30% off, 40% off, 50% off, free shipping, etc., to suddenly go back to full price and $10 shipping, tough, tough, tough game. Some people will ride it out and they'll get to the other side and they'll re-establish themselves as not the discounting model. Other people will cave in after a few months because they just, you know, they their business has 
is used to hitting these sort of volume numbers or you know certain objectives and uh you know i can tell you in the car industry when you're in that mode so you can either do it discounts to customers or they used to do it to um the uh rental car companies okay we need to like just shift 500 cars at the end of the month to hit our numbers okay we'll just give them to avis a 30 discount and we'll agree to buy them back at exactly the same price three months later so you're not making a cent on them but you just hit your numbers and that drug suddenly becomes like more and more irresistible as the months go on and your sales numbers are harder and harder to achieve it's like okay not 500 cars we'll do a thousand cars at 30 discount and then 2000 cars and then suddenly the majority that's why you know maybe not now um because there's a global shortage of cars but um you know you, you turn up at brisbane airport and you look at you go into the car park of those rental companies you'll probably see the same manufacturers replicated across all the different uh, rental car companies because those are the ones who've got to have probably found themselves in that situation um so yeah tough interesting talking about that now it's making me a bit worried from moving because that that pivot i'm making from like a three to five thousand product down to free um sort of what i did was we have a program it's 24 weeks and i've broken it up into each week and people can get the first week free to unlock the next week they would have had to earn enough studying coins from watching the previous week to unlock the next one or they could refer a friend or they can just buy the studying coins from someone else in the community so i've added in referral mechanisms where one client can potentially turn into another two and those two turns into another five and these are it's all hypothesis so i don't know if it would work and if i go down this route and it doesn't work is it going to be impossible for me to revert back yeah interesting i don't know um for your business it's a relatively sort of um niche area so it's sort of and, and you're not um a big uh, in your face household brand that then creates this sort of uh you know brand image of a, of a company that either discounts or gives stuff away for free whatever so i think you probably have the ability to um test and learn and pivot reasonably quickly without it sort of you know destroying the value that you have um you know, I mean, if you look like, I think Geolingo is a great example of um, an app that really started off as a sort of, yeah, you know, we're just here to help you and help your language skills. And we'll, you know, try and fit some ads in maybe. Then the ads became more frequent. Then they became the sort of, you know, the premium edition for not a huge amount of money. And then you kind of get to that, okay, how many subscriptions can we get in a year at what price? Is that enough? Does that create enough growth? Or are I now tapped out on all the people um, who are prepared to, you know, pay whatever it is, 60, 90 bucks a year, whatever it is, um, 120 bucks a year or something. Um, and so have I tapped out on that opportunity? In which case, as Netflix has found, the only way to, to keep on increasing revenue then is to increase the price. And at a certain point, price then becomes, a, you know, a, a detracting factor when you get unsubscribes. Um, so it's a very, you know, I'm sure that there are very, very smart people out there and, you know, in business and economics who've kind of modeled a lot of this stuff out. Um, but I, I know, I, I think you, you're you doing the right thing, like test, learn, um, especially where I think where people don't know what the value is. So if you have a very high value proposition that is very clear, so people sort of say, okay, I don't know. You can you can save my cat's life for five dollars. People will go. That's that's a steal. Like you you have you know any single person who owns a cat 
would say, you know, if I put that down and whatever happens, you'll be able to save my cat's life. Five dollars is a very small amount of money price to pay for a huge benefit. Um, if you're asking for a thousand bucks, what I'd say is that you need to be very clear of what that benefit is. And I think a free a freemium kind of model works well in that environment. It's sort of you get people in, they see what the value is. Then how do you then extract value? How do you extract more money out of them? So can you walk them up, as you say, like in different game, gamified ways, can you walk them up into either doing your marketing for you by spreading the word? Can they, can you get them to subscribe for five bucks a month that then becomes, you know, that's just a little bit better and then 20 bucks a month and, you know, you know your product better than, than I do, so. I want to get your hypothesis or something I guess. So if Duolingo, for example, they had like a French beginner course and they never can get that for free now people would come in and then there'll be a french sort of intermediate now that would be you know maybe they'll cost a hundred dollars or the student could unlock it by referring a friend rather than pay a hundred dollars they just refer a new person in if duolingo implemented a referral mechanism would that blow things up or why aren't people doing this more often it's a good question i don't actually know the answer um i'll be honest um the the, I, you know, when you're talking in that sort of referral affiliate space, there is always the question asked, and, I, and I'm not an expert. Um, you should, you know, probably talk to um, the guys who sort of run big affiliate uh, networks. There is, I think there's always the charge, which is, would I have had this customer anyway? Or in now, have they gone to a, like a website and found that there's just a, there's a, a cheat way of doing it? And so if you're one of those affiliate companies, you're, you, you think you've worked out all the ways to sort of stop that from happening. Um, but if you look at like, um, you know, shop back or cash rewards, then, then it's very difficult to know. Would you have come to me anyway? And you just remembered, oh, I just, if I just do one more or two more extra clicks, I'll make some money from this. So therefore I'm sort of cheating the system. Or have you discovered now, let's say, shopping on Myers website is now, you haven't really thought of it and now you will because it's being offered to you so i guess the question is is if, if someone puts down five fake email addresses or just says to all your friends look can you just click on this and all you've got to do is just sign up to the newsletter and then i'll get my free course then you can end up with a lot of sort of like you know people trying to game the system and, and garbage um but if it's like if it's genuine i mean like duolingo would be a, a great example of a lot of people do want to learn another, another language and so they might not have thought about it and they might not have realized just how great Duolingo is and how easy easy it is to access so um i don't know why they haven't done it but yeah i mean i think it, uh, if you said you can get rid of ads for the next week whilst you're invested in going from you know beginner to intermediate if you get five other people to you know begin a course yeah why not like it's that's because that's that creates a level of commitment. It's and it's a great app. Um, having done it myself, um, that you probably it's a delight and surprise thing. So once you do sign up, then I think you'll be quite blown away. And then you're the next person sort of sucked into learning schoolboy Spanish or French or whatever. Yeah, I think on the other side of things, like I've had heard sort of requalified people say that they gave me a perspective that them having to tell another friend that is a pretty high ask like they'd prefer to just pay fifty dollars or a hundred dollars um and i was like damn like 
I wanted to create a model where I no longer have to push and convince people to come in. I have a valuable product. I don't want to sell it. I want a word of mouth to kick in. And, and I thought this model might be it, but I guess I would have to test it to really see. Yeah, no, that's a really good perspective. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm like that myself. I, I tend to keep those opportunities for sharing stories with people or, or offers or, or, or links or whatever um, to things that I think are really useful and might add value or they might find interesting. And so therefore I, I value my sort of my own personal brand, either in my friendship professional network or whatever, to sort of not devalue that by just spamming them with an offer of, you know, a fidget spinner for half price. Cause I'm like, well, you're going to look at me going, why the hell are you sending me links to half price fidget spinners? Like there must, must be something in it for you. And now I feel that you've sort of raided our, our friend piggy bank um to to get something free for yourself and that's like a little bit grubby so i think yeah i, I think is if if that thing like duolingo i think genuinely a lot of people harbor the notion of being able to speak another language or an additional language um so i don't think people would judge you for that but if you are sending out you know links to you know i don't know pokemon cards then people will say why is Andy sending me like links to like you know half price Pokemon cards or you know if I buy ten cards I'll get the the portfolio book to go with it you know it's sort of like, <laughs> like why like what 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 and then it's you know that's 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 always the problem about um, signing up to phone plans energy offers insurance or whatever those sorts of things because it's sort of do you know me well enough to know that I'm in the market to change my electricity provider probably not you don't know anything about my electricity needs so why are you now Selling, selling that to me. So it's, it's tough. Now, over the last few days, the market has taken a huge hit. Do you think we are going into a recession? And, and if we are, what's your biggest advice on how businesses can survive the next three or four years? Yeah, I don't, I don't have a crystal ball, but I do. there are a lot of signs, you know, that they, you're young and fresh faced and I'm old and warty. So I've sort of lived through a few recessions. There, there is a little sense of, you know, a lot of recessions uh, are caused by a withdrawal of credit facilities, uh, you know, particularly mortgages and that sort of stuff. I don't know. I, I don't see that on the horizon in a kind of what happened in the GFC where the banks all stopped lending to each other because they didn't know that the other bank was good for the money. Uh, and there was a lack of trust in the system. So that's what kind of caused that one. And then there's a, you know, dot-com boom. There's been different things that have caused different uh, stuff. I think this one, there's a bunch of factors around inflation, which obviously maybe the genie is a little bit more out of the bottle than anyone would like to admit. You know, the RBA obviously got caught, um, you know, last week. Uh, in having to suddenly put up rates, which is hard considering that they've been telling people for a long time that they would definitely not be putting up rates for until 2024. And if you're a home buyer and you said, you know, you, you've gone out there and said, oh, I won't go for a fixed price mortgage, a fixed rate mortgage, I'm going to go for a variable one because the RBA governor has told me, don't worry about it. Then suddenly that lack of, suddenly that shock and that sort of, oh, all of my plans have relied on this advice, I think could uh could be um, very troubling um plus all the the things that we're not in control of all those external inflationary factors um as well as now probably building wage 
um, pressure that might cause uh, local impacts. So you end up in this, you know, recession is mostly a lack of confidence and a lack of money supply, you know, uh, credit. So I don't worry so much about the credit side of it, apart from just the price of credit as interest rates go up. Um, but the confidence thing I can see hitting us. And so I think it's going to be a very interesting next six to 12 months if we have a change of government, which looks maybe increasingly likely or a hung parliament, which is maybe even more likely, I don't know. Um, will that in, in of itself create us, you know, a bit of doubt and we, you know, our budget situation is pretty bad. So at some point we've got to start to balance it off, which means pulling money out of the economy, which then sort of predicates more to a recession type thing. So I don't know. That's I don't know the answer, but I, I have a, I have a nagging feeling that it's going to be, if not a recession, it's going to be pretty tough um, over the next uh, little while. What to do? It's interesting because it's, you know, I've been now in two major sort of uh, impacting events, GFC, and I was at Google, um, COVID, and I was at Critio. I think in both cases, businesses tend to overreact and batten down the hatches, and then they take too long to realize that the, the, the weather, the storm didn't come, and then start to expand again. I would say, Often businesses that do really well have really good cost control, um, but they don't get rid of really good talent during tough times because the second there are any signs of growth, you've now lost your ability to grow with the market again. So I would be looking to, um, you know, do things like uh, talk with your talk with your teams. Like if you're a business like ours. Um, and not like a, a service business where you, you know where bums on seats can, then can you be in a situation where people have the ability to go down to like say four days a week? So you're all sort of sharing the pain a little bit, but no one's being like absolutely clobbered, and you're ready for things when they expand. Can you just get rid of extraneous costs? That's where you should be going first, rather than getting rid of you know or, or reducing time with with amazing people. So can you get cost out of your business or just delay, you know, some things that are not really, really important. Um, but I, I, I do think that, you know, Google made a mistake. They, they closed all these little satellite offices. They um, got rid of a bunch of people. They, um, they had a massive um, squeeze on costs um, in the GFC. And Eric Schmidt admitted years later, yeah, that was a, that was a dumb thing to do. They were in perfectly placed to do well in a tight environment. So, you know, if you were in hospitality at the start of COVID, of course you need to get rid of people because it was obvious that that was going to be really hit and there's no way you could survive without doing that. But if you're in an in a industry that tends to benefit from change and you're at the forefront of technology and innovation, I, I think those are the times that you need to be ready to actually go harder and not pull back. Interesting. and. When a recession happens, do you sort of does like conversion rates just like drop? Like let's say you had a product and it was converting at two percent when you would market it, and it dropped down to one point five percent. And if your margin is like only thirty percent, now you sort of like break even and maybe making a loss. And as a result, you just disappear. And a solution would be improve and, and make your marketing even better make your product better to keep it at two percent until the market gets back or like what happens since i haven't been through it 
Yeah, look, uh, good question. And I'm not like, it's by no means I'm any expert. Though you do see there are certain categories of purchases that do drop off really quickly. So for example, new cars, as soon as, as markets tighten and the recession looms, someone doesn't want to take on a purchase of $40,000 with a with a, a car loan because suddenly, you know, everyone knows, well, maybe not at the moment, but generally, you know, that when you, if you buy a new car and you come to sell it because you're forced to six months down the line, because you can't afford repayments anymore, you're going to also lose a lot of money as soon as you drive off the forecourt. So certain categories tend to get hammered much quicker, um, you know, high-end restaurants and things like that. So people pull away from those um, sort of, ex- you know, like, like really pricey categories. Um, so if you're a, let's say you're a retailer and you are um, in, you know, the fast fashion, discount fast fashion category, um, th- then you'll probably do pretty well in that environment. So maybe your conversion rate goes down because you've got more people hunting around than you would normally get because in the past they may have automatically gone to, let's say, Witchery or Country Road. Now suddenly they're coming onto like the iconic and looking for maybe a lower price point, um, entry point to to get a new, you know, dress, shirt, jeans, whatever. Um, so your conversion rate might go down, but your website business might go up. Um, and as long as you're not paying like disproportionately for all that extra traffic, then, you know, you've got plenty to play around with. So you're in the right place at the right time. It might just play around with your conversion rate. Um, if you're selling, you know, Maseratis, then I would, I would say, you know, you need to batten down the hatches a lot more because those those will tend to disappear, you know, quicker and faster and will take longer to come back. Um, you know, in a recession, Aldi does really well and, um, you know, eating out in posh restaurants doesn't. So you you need to be, I think, very uh, nimble to be able to switch um, the your focus. If you have a broad range of products with different price points, then you probably need to, you know, just think about what's the right thing for that moment. And do you know what? And, and I, I think uh, everyone says they're really good at sort of, you know, uh, analytics and data, or they, they sort of think they are, and they have a team that does it and everything. But I reckon people are nowhere near as good at picking those trends out. And actually, that's something, I'm not here to like, you know, spruik our company, but Creo does really well because we have, you know, the vast majority of retailers in Australia. So we we actually know what products people are looking at, which ones they convert on, what the basket size is. Um, and we've now just, uh, literally last week, we just um, hired and uh, had start uh, a new um, local analyst to try and find some of those nuggets out of that data, which have previously sort of resided in a database in France somewhere that's been difficult to access. Um, so, um, you know, I hope that we'd be able to add value to people. So it's sort of, okay, people were looking at, you know, $200 pair of sneakers before, and now they're looking at like, you know, $80 ones because they don't, they can't afford like the latest edition. They just need to go for the ones that are kind of, they look nice and they're comfortable and they're a good brand. Interesting. So let's say car companies, for example, do they sort of just during a tough period do they just operate at a loss knowing that good times will come back and they'll be able to make back that loss and do you recommend them to either switch business models or go into hibernation and just cut all costs until the market comes back yeah i mean that is really tough because you when you build a car a huge percentage of the components you're not making yourself you're buying from other people so the easiest thing to do is to just uh, you know 
let's say you you run three eight-hour shifts a day over six days or something you know you can cut a whole shift down so you can get rid of a whole load of people you can slow the production line down but that affects your productivity you can decide to yeah literally just like turn the lights out on the factory but that is a huge amount of investment that you've made and you have to remember that also your suppliers have made and if you push them into bankruptcy the day when the demand comes back and you switch the lights back on that you might find that the person that's making your you know breaks um is no longer in, in existence or you've been able to suddenly transfer the tooling out of them and put it somewhere else so there's some very very complex things that happen um, in cars broadly speaking they will reduce the number of hours um per shift and they will reduce the number of like days that you um, operate or and they'll get to the point where the factory is no longer sort of viable running almost any number of hours in a day so they will intend to sort of close the factory for let's say three weeks um and then let the demand sort of build up and the orders build up and then they'll bring the people back and they'll fulfill them because it it is like it's a bit like airlines car industries can be hugely profitable but they can be hugely loss making on the turn of a dime and that dime is how many units are you selling like how many units is that factory making and then what price are you what discounts are you offering to the consumer so i think the i mean tesla has some innate advantages in the amount of automation that it has um and the flexibility of its production lines enables it to probably be to, to flex more than the average but then as you saw what happened the um, supply chains are very long and, and take a long time to set up in auto so what they did in the in the start of covid is they then basically went to all their suppliers and said we're going to cut back our orders of all these things and one of those things were silicon chips and if you're samsung or whoever making silicon chips you're kind of probably quite happy for that because at the same time lenovo and apple were selling more laptops and ps5 and you know xbox were coming out with new models so like great well we can make different chips for people who actually pay us bigger margins and they'll they suddenly turn their attention to that the result is now that there's a global supply shortage of chips and particularly for cars so you have to be careful with cars because it's difficult to um it's the impact that you have on your suppliers almost as much as it is to the the cost within your own business interesting do car companies ever like borrow money in, in huge loans that would allow them to weather the storm for the next three to five tough years is that a common thing yes um they are very adept at asking governments for subsidies and uh, in the gfc you saw the three big manufacturers were all about to turn up um and beg for government funding and ironically they turned up to washington dc in their private jets the cor corporate jets i should say and the and congress called them out on it and said you're turning up here begging for taxpayers money on your your corporate jets what what sacrifices are you making and this is where car companies they know how many jobs um they create in a, an economy how valuable those jobs are seen by governments all over the world to who clamor to open you know give someone a, a free piece of land to put their you know 200,000 year car factory in um so they're very adept at squeezing money out of governments and when it's money it's it's often loans um so they're on the scale where they have an impact on huge like thousands and thousands of jobs so they tend to 
um, very, very quickly in any um, of those circumstances. As, as soon as things turn slightly negative for them, they they have lobbying, you know, machines that go into overdrive, basically <laughs> claiming to the, the the government of the country where the factories are located, saying it's calamity. We're going to pull out of here and concentrate our production in China um, unless you you know give us a cut price loan or free money or you know whatever. And and they're very adept at it. And so um, at the moment they'll they'll be doing okay. But two years ago at the start of COVID, you'd have seen a lot of. Um, car manufacturers turning up at the doors of of governments and, and sort of business enterprise parts of government saying, "I need you know a two hundred million dollar loan for for you know zero percent um, paid back over forty years or whatever it happens to be um, to keep the lights on." And then lo and behold, a year later, everything's hunky dory. They're making record profits, and now they've just got cheap credit that's been underwritten by a local government. Wow! Yeah, because like. As I've done this pivot, I had to focus a lot on the product, the software to create those referral mechanisms and our revenue just dropped drastically and I sort of had to do the same thing over the last 6 to 12 months. I've just been getting my team to apply for a bunch of different grants, marketing grants, rebates, startup grants, applying for um, you know Y Combinator and it's just like a constant like just see what we can get um, and hopefully now that we're launching soon... Um, you know things will change but yeah it's really interesting to hear that com- car companies do the exact same thing and what's been what's been the biggest learning you've had in your business since the start the biggest learning i think the biggest recent shift is that in order to grow something that would really have the ability to scale and reach a lot of people i can't do what everyone else is doing um, usually where people are making money is they're doing the same thing that someone else has done but at a better level and they're sort of making that, that that's where they make their money the better they can do it than everyone else that's how much money they can make and if I play in that game it's going to be this constant you know the market's going to get better and I'm, if I want to always if I want to be 30% of the market if the market gets better I have to improve by 20% it's this constant grind but if I went ahead and went my own path and did something different, I no longer have to play that competition. Whatever I make, um, unless someone else comes in, I don't have to do a better job because I'm the only person doing that. I think that has been the biggest shift where it's like, wow, I don't have to do, you know, a phone call funnel where we bring in a bunch. Oh, like one of the things people would do in my space is they'll create like an automated webinar where you run ads, bring them to like a two-hour automated webinar, have this pitch, and then you sort of sell them the product at the end of the pitch. And that's what a lot of people did in our space. But in order to make money, you have to do that really, really good. So I can either spend one to two years just figuring out, redoing it again and again, getting it better and better, and tweaking things to make it work, just for it to not work in six months' time, and then I have to improve it again. Or I could just go down this other path, but in this other path I'm going down right now, it's it's unknown. I don't know if it would work. I'm not making money. It's it's scary. There's so much anxiety, um, and I just have to push through it, I guess. And look, I mean, I think you're incredibly sort of entrepreneurial and brave. Um, and then, if at the end of all that, you either are like really successful, you'll have. You'll be able to look back and say, 
it's because I made these, you know, bold decisions and and you know went out and and had a hypothesis and I went and tested it and it worked. If on the flip side it doesn't, then whatever you go into next, you'll be able to sort of turn around and go, do you know what I I I did these things that I think I would still do again. I did a bunch of these things which I never I would never do again. And the 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 people I've seen do really really well in their careers aren't afraid of failure. They don't look for failure, but they're not afraid of failure. And they, what they do is they carry through the 80% of what was really good in what they did. And they are, are rigorous in learning the 20% of the things that they um, would not want to repeat. And then the next one, and that's why they, I think they sort of say often, you know, many startups, whatever, it's often like the third or fourth one that is the most successful because there's a learning process to go through. Um, and so, I think the worst thing is for people to think I won't do something because I'm afraid of failure. And I, I would always say that the people I've seen, you know, do the best are the ones who've taken the biggest risks. And that can be even within a corporate environment. I see time and time again that people get frustrated in their careers because they're not making the progress that they hoped. And often the decision was that they, where they made a mistake is they had an opportunity of going sideways or even a little bit backwards, but they could have gone into something completely new, got out of their comfort zone and learned a new sector or whatever it happened to be. And they don't do it because they, in their brain, they are taking a risk and potentially either not going forward immediately or they even going potentially a little bit back. And they don't do it, but then they get stuck in what they're doing. And then 10 years time, everybody else who made those decisions and took the greater risks have completely leapfrogged them and then they get frustrated and they're like, well, what did that person do? They didn't do, and it's like they took risks and they learned new things and they were able to, you know, carry with them a huge amount of experience that they got from their first gig into the next one that was a completely different proposition as a role, as a job, either or as a company. Um, and, you know, I, I, I look and sort of think, when you have those opportunities of sort of saying, do I take a risk? Do I carry on doing what I'm doing? I would say that you should always err on the side of wanting to take the risk. Now, you can de-risk some of those things, like I said, like with things like pre-typing, you could um, you know, look at, let's say, if you're taking a role and I don't know, you're paid $10,000 a year less, but it's a completely new area, then you know, de-risking it might be saying to your, you know, your existing boss. If, this, if I really screw this up and I hate it, it's only chance of coming back. Let's say, and, and if you're a good employee, that person will say, of course, I don't know whether it will be that, that day or week or month, but obviously the next role that becomes available, I'm happy to welcome you back. That's an easy, like, that's a five minute conversation in de-risking, de-risking that, that, that strategy. But any of, any of the job moves that I've made, um, you know, have always been, for, like, have always helped me grow. And I look back and go, do you know what, if I was going back to, you know, Peugeot as a, as a head of um, digital now, you know, would I do things differently? And I, yeah, I would. I, I would have taken more risks. Yeah. One thing I'm sort of learning is maybe two years ago when I sort of went down this new path, I dropped everything. Or maybe in the last 12, uh, nine months, I've been fully focused on studying.com and the education platform. And I said no to everything. I was just laser focused. The pros of that well like I'm, I'm always balancing between focus versus doing a lot of things so now that you know our cash reserves are getting lower and lower 
I've been in emergency mode where I'm opening a few dropshipping stores, open a few e-commerce stores. My friend wants to try something on Amazon with me, so I'm saying yes to that. Um, someone wants me to, I'm saying yes to everything and I'm doing a lot of things. Now, what I'm realizing is as I'm doing a lot of things, yes, most things don't work, but I'm learning a lot more. Things are opening much faster because it didn't work, it led to something else. And there is a lot of value in doing a lot. But if I went ahead and focused on my one company, my one thing, that probably could have grew maybe 10% faster. And, and since it's a pretty big, well, that 10% could compound much, much faster than these little side businesses I do. So this constant juggle. Yeah, and it is about spinning plates. And I think if you don't have, you know, if I, if I go back to my time at Google, there were, there were, there were many moments at Google where Google was in danger of being like overly focused on search to the exclusion of all other things. And, you know, it acquired YouTube and double click and Android and, and these sorts of things. Um, but still the main money was coming from search. So you could have taken the view of everything else is a side project and, and, and a low side project at that because of the, the absolute money-making machine that is search. But I, I think if you think, here's my main gig, you know, the sort of Pareto principle, whatever, you know, here's the, you know, the like 70, 20, 10, I, I, I need to put 70% of my effort into the thing I think is going to give me the best return over short, medium and long term. But I don't want to do that at the exclusion of all else because somebody else might come out with a competing product that's better, you know, better priced, whatever. Um, better resourced. Um, so then I need an, I need a 20% gig and then I need a 10% gig. And so I think you're doing the right thing. It, you know, if there's a if there's a way that you can sort of, you know, generate a small bit of income through an Amazon store, um, you know, why not? Will you ever, by using somebody else's platform and in that type of environment, will you ever become, you know, a billionaire? Probably not. But can it keep the wolf on the door Yes, and is it is it you know is it something you can also is there any transferability of of skills into that so that not only can you keep the wolf in the door but it actually can help you sort of refine your attitude to the twenty percent project and the seventy percent one. If yes, awesome, then absolutely do it. If not, then it's like okay, I'll just do that. I'll use that as a kind of like a paper round. It's literally just for making money, and that's all it is. And then just but compartmentalize it so you're not overly investing your time in that 10% area if it is just a pure you know money making thing because you know otherwise if you might as well just take a barista job at the weekend and, and earn money that way because then you can just switch your head off and just get to chat to customers and then you actually might find someone who's in the same line of business wants to invest in your company I don't know like it's sort of everything's an opportunity an opportunity cost and so I think just knowing where these different things sit in your sort of 70, 20, 10 kind of um, world, I think is is really helpful. So you're not overly invested in the 10%. If it's either going nowhere or it has a low chance of, you know, it might go somewhere, but it has a low chance of success. Yeah, I think something that I realized was, like I was chatting to another founder and he said, you know, during a recession, you should double down on what's working, you know, double down on your cash flow. And I was like, damn, like I sort of, dropped my main cash flow to focus on this new business so when times get tough I don't have something to double down on. hence I'm just saying yes to everything because I'm trying to find something that works 
So previously, the previous model that was producing consistent cash flow was creating amazing YouTube content that was curated. I put in a lot of time. It was a bit, you know, I got burnt out talking about Facebook ads, drop shipping, repeating the same thing again and again. When I've grown to, you know, I'm now focused on company culture, hiring, and I want to talk about new things. I didn't want to talk about those things. And the second thing was I didn't want to sell and then leads would come through from my YouTube content and I had to sell them, convince them and tell them why my product's amazing. I got burnt out from doing those things, but that was my main cash flow. And I dropped it because I thought I was like, you know, what's the point of life if I'm not doing what I enjoy? I enjoy creating amazing products. So I pivoted and now I'm sitting on something that doesn't make money at all. And I think this conversation is sort of helping me. Okay, maybe I should just roll up my sleeves and, you know, start going back and doing the main cash flow sort of business. Maybe I shouldn't go all the way down and, and get and build some e-com stores and then I should only take one step backwards and, and get back into creating content even though I might not enjoy fully talking about those things. It's sort of work. Yeah, and I think if, I think there's a plenty of place, Andy, to you know, have a balance between those things. I don't know whether you, you don't need to go, I think, back into it 100% because it's not what you enjoy. You've only got one life on this planet, or I, I believe you only have one life on this planet. So maybe you go, it's, rather than now that it's a 0%, make, maybe make that, you know, 50% because you know you can do it and you know you can do it well. It's not where your heart is. And then, you know, you'll only be 50% as rich as you were doing that as before, but it's maybe enough. And then you've still got a whole 50% that you can apply to your current endeavor. And that gives you a lot more facts to play with. And so that if there is that suddenly like, you know, like pedal to the metal opportunity, there's suddenly like a break in the traffic and you can off you go, then you've got the funds and the cash flow and everything to, to invest. Um, and I, yeah, the worst thing will be is that you suddenly realize that there's this amazing opportunity and you've got nothing to put behind it because then you'll be begging around all your friends. Your 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 lead creation will be your, your uh, you know, demand for loans from all your mates to help you sort of invest in this amazing opportunity. And that might take you longer to get scrub, you know, pull that together than the opportunity, you know, you miss out on the opportunity and it's gone and somebody else comes in. That totally makes sense. Now, Conway, I've noticed like you've worked at Google for a long time, like eight plus years, I think. Like a lot of people don't work at one place. How was Google? What was it like? Did you get a chance to meet the founders like Eric, uh, Sergey, um, Larry Page? Look, it's a, it is an amazing company uh, and I would never say anything different. Um, it, it's changed a lot over that time. So I, I joined in t back in 2006 and I left in, when was that, twenty. 18 does that sound about right um so it's like yeah it was, it was 12 years so for, uh, almost two years wow. in the uk and then 10 years in australia look the the, the original company uh, and the guys so larry and sergey and they brought in eric um to you know be the sort of the mentor really and the 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 ceo and then then chairman yeah so they kind of learned it was kind of like shark tank style they, they what they were getting out of it of employing eric was a sort of a grandfather of the Silicon Valley, you know, uh, tech industry. So they obviously had taken a lot of advice. They met him at Burning Man Festival, I believe, <laughs> um, of all places. Um, 
So there was a lot to love about Google and the craziness and the fact that, let's be honest, you know, there were many Googles that came before Google, uh, you know, some that we remember and some that, you know, never went anywhere. They just, you know, they were lucky with timing. They were, they had a great, great, great product. Um, and they made, and they were very daring in the early days. I think what I would say is they look after their staff really well. There's lots of very, very, very smart people there. One of the challenges of any of those big companies is over time, if you hire, if you sort of overhire um, really, really smart people, eventually as the um, industry goes from high growth to medium growth to slower growth, then you've got a bunch of people who don't want to leave because it's an amazing company that's well paid. Um, but they all want to be promoted. And because unless you want to end up with this very, you know, top heavy, you know, inverse, inverted pyramid, that's not possible. And so inevitably over time, then people get, you know, sort of disappointed with their career growth. Um, and that then translates into a, it can translate into a, uh, an environment where there's a lot of time spent on trying to sort of fluff up your internal portfolio, you know, to make it look better, to get promoted, which then turns from being um, productive use of smart people's time and ideas into unproductive um, uh, use of time yeah. ideas. And I do sort of think that, you know, it is inevitable that companies mature and then become it does become a bit more political and so therefore you then start to get a level of dissatisfaction of why did she get promoted why did he get promoted and i didn't or or other people looking at you every day and thinking you know why won't you just sort of you know get out of my way and let me take your job and get promoted um and it's hard because people don't want to leave leave google especially in the uh, days when we used to go into the office you know five days a week amazing office spaces free food really collaborative and energetic um, and, and inspiring uh, environment and colleagues to work around. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, it, by and large, you're not saving lives, you're selling media space. Some people in Google are working on some of those projects, but the majority are not. The 99% of something people, you know, are working on the core media sales business, you know, search YouTube, GDN, double click, etc. Um, so you know, they have a problem. They have almost like the opposite of a, of a, of a staff churn problem. They have an over-staff retention issue, which then leads to, or can lead to, you know, corporate sort of infighting or, or, you know, jockeying for position. And then a whole load of sort of smoke and mirrors glory projects that are kind of created for someone to sort of look good because they want to get promoted uh, and are actually not that productive to the, to the enterprise. So my take from it all was you know, know when it is when your time is up. I, I probably stayed about one year longer than than was good for me. And I probably started to get into that. I, I'm not, my heart's not in this. Uh, and I think I would advise anyone, as soon as you start to feel my heart's not in this, then start to look around for your next opportunity. Because it's not, it's not a failure to say, my time is done here. I did 10 years at Persia, I did 12 years at Google, and I've done three years at Critio and had many careers within those two previous companies. Um, and it's not a failing to say that you're done with a, with a company. Um, you know, nor would I suggest that you just spend, you know, a year in each company and hop around. Um, but no, when, no, probably when your time, when you're, you stopped 
bringing freshness and new ideas and energy to a role. And it's time for somebody else to do that. And for you then to go into a new environment that's going to be, yeah, it's going to be out of your comfort zone for a period of time, but it'll be invigorating. And it's sort of, you know, like dating someone all over again and all the, the, the fears and excitement you get from all of that. And then eventually you go down into a sort of a sort of a more stable situation and, and you know in a relationship and a family that's probably a, a good thing that you know you're not kind of getting butterflies in the stomach every single day uh, and worrying about when your partner's coming home but i think in a job sense i think it can le lead you to be a little complacency and i think I, yeah that probably had happened about a year before i left google so you know as i started to sort of see that reaction internally and and sort of could see that people were not as impressed with me as they used to be it was like do you know before you call it out i'm going to call myself out on it and i'm going to go and find something else that's beautiful one thing i sort of one light bulb moment i had over the last two or three years was you know when i was sort of selling courses cash was really strong i had a lot of cash reserves i was like you know what should i invest in like i don't want to let this cash just sit here and you know everyone's talking about real estate stocks um you know invest in you know these different things and i just sort of looked at what you know the founders of google uh, microsoft tesla like what they did and then like they're not you know elon musk like they don't own much real estate they don't own much stocks they just reinvest everything back into the company but how do they reinvest things back into the company like what like what do they invest in like they can't buy more real estate offices and i was like wow like the common thing that all these companies have is they're always hiring employees people they're like finding ways to give employees the best experience they increase they're giving amazing um sort of employee sort of packages and they're constantly hiring all the time and then i realized i was like whoa employees are an asset you know you you pay an employee let's say 80 grand a year they output 160 grand worth of output and every year they're growing and the longer they're with you the more they're worth and yes the increase in salary doesn't match the increase in sort of output because they're constantly growing. and i was like holy crap no wonder all these top companies are just recruiting all the time and they figured out the the highest returning investment is that am i just imagining things or is this no, you're right. I mean, I, someone told me once you know um you know hire at leisure because you want to make sure that you don't hire the wrong people however if you see good people like we had a situation a few months back where we were interviewing for a particular role and we saw two really amazing people and i just said look we'll just hire both of them and i then had to go and then just sort of you know beg for forgiveness um with my head office to sort of say look you know, yes, our costs will go up a little bit, but believe me, um, we will get the return back um, because, you know, most people who are, uh, you know, ex-Google will tell you they don't necessarily, they miss the excitement of being, you know, in the in, in the sort of the, the furnace of invention and everything and all the excitement and stuff that happens within Google. But the actual thing they miss most is the people they worked with and, and I think, yeah, if you hire a bunch of really smart people, and if you can hire people who are better, smarter than yourself, then amazing things are possible. And, and the flip is true as well, that you will get dragged down by people who are, you know, demotivated, you know, you know, not quite, you know, the right fit for the role, etc. Um, so that's why it's sort of 
take time to hire. So be in a hurry to hire, but don't be in a hurry to hire that person. If they're not right, wait, just move on to the next person. And only like, that's why it was refreshing for me going from Persia, which had like a specific date for applications that closed and Google doesn't. It's like, we are always hiring. We are always on the lookout for good talent and a job date never closes until we find the candidate that we want. And and Critio is a little bit like that. Um, I think it could be a little bit more, more um, sort of discerning, because I think in in some parts of our company, we can be a bit sort of, we've got a hiring quota to meet and, and we want to move on to the next bunch, bunch of hires. Um, but yeah, I, I think in a business, if you can possibly afford it, em- employ smart people. Most people, even if they're not exactly trained to do the thing that you need them to do, if they're smart, if they're intellectually curious, if they're hungry, if they are team players, then amazing things will happen. And all the things that you might think about your business, Andy, and and what you have plans for will be tested and challenged by amazing new talent that comes in and says, why aren't we doing this? I've spotted an opportunity. I was talking at the IAB debate with, I got t- chatting to this random person and they were talking to me about this thing. And I reckon we could pivot a bit towards that. And you're like, I haven't even thought of that. Like, and I, and I certainly don't have the skills to do it myself, but go nuts and go make it happen. And, you know, I, I think if, if you're lucky enough to be able to have enough cash flow to hire really smart people, smart people can do um, amazing things. Um, and, and it's not, I don't necessarily mean just academically smart. They're just, yeah, intellectually curious and, and and have like drive and passion. Uh, as a as a, a Miley Carnegie who used to run Google and now is at ANZ told me she'd rather you know tame a stallion than flog a donkey. Um, and I I kind of keep that to heart. It's when you're going through the interviewing process or you meet someone and you sort of might have an eye on them to hire them. If you, if the question you're asking yourself is are they a bit too much? Are they are they too high energy? For my environment i mean like obviously i'm not saying hire crazies but i mean like i would say hire them people with with energy and passion it's easier to calm them down and just steer them and guide them a bit and, and then just make them realize that you know maybe they need to sort of just you know take a, a a breath than it is to sort of try and whip someone up who's just their heart's not in it or they don't have the skills one thing i've sort of struggled with was that as I sort of grew my team, I find myself like make because I think I didn't have the budget. So right now, all we have like twenty employees, but they're all sort of outsourced. They're sort of in the Philippines. Everything from editors to copywriters, recruiters, um, people to help with PR, social media. And then I find myself with each one of those things. I could sort of do a pretty good job where I'm a bit frustrated because that person. Their sole job is to do copywriting and 1% of my brain power can go to copywriting and I could look at our weekly email campaign and be like, you know, this could be done way so much better. Um, but then recently I've sort of leaned into that, like that's sort of why I'm the CEO, that's why I get paid, how much I get paid, that's why I have 100% equity in the company. And I heard a story about how Elon Musk, there could be like a problem that engineers are struggling with and they they can't figure out the problem for six months straight and apparently i don't know if it's true but elon musk would come into the room see the problem that this team has been working months on and be like yep do this change that that yep yep and then 
he would solve the problem where these educated engineers were struggling with and, and I definitely could relate with that and it really normalized my problem but at the same time I do have to increase my cash flow to hire people that are better than me at those individual things but maybe even at those individual things I, I still might have different perspectives and might still want to critique that person I don't know yeah there's always a tension between um you know steering a, a ship and then micromanaging every you know last little bit um i i think it's also true that you need when i say diverse i don't mean male female diverse which is often things are boiled down to um you need a diverse team of talents if you end up with a bunch of people who all get on with each other and they would all naturally kind of if they had met in any other environment they would naturally just come together it's probably not the right exactly the right team it's great that they all get on but getting on can also mean group thing and not challenging the status quo i remember when i first joined critio and this person now she's for, for personal reasons her, her husband had, had you know one had an amazing opportunity with mckinsey and, and moved with her move there and uh, moved uh, to Sweden. So he had an opportunity with McKinsey in Sweden as a partner. So he needed to move, he had the bigger job. And so she sort of followed him. But anyway, I just remember my first week at, at Critio, we had a team activity and it was going to an escape room. And apparently I wasn't in her group. She absolutely blasted it. And they were out in like record time because she's one of those people that just has a completely different way of thinking to the rest of the team. So while they were all in group think of, of all being polite with each other and saying, we think this is how we solve the puzzle. She was on the other side of the room, looking at it from a different perspective and found the answer. And yeah, she, she wasn't not a team player. She wasn't awkward to deal with, but she definitely wasn't the, hey, where are we all going for lunch together type person. She was quite an individual. So if you were hiring on that basis of like, is she the best fit? And am I going to, are we going to end up having amazing camping trips with her? You probably wouldn't have chosen her for that role because she's a bit of an individual, but man, like she could cut through and see things that other people couldn't. And you need those people, as long as they're not so jarring and so destructive to team culture, you need enough people, enough composition of different views and talents um, to be successful. I, I was having a conversation yesterday you know, I think it'd be fair to say a lot of people in the industry are not necessarily the biggest fans of the current government, um, you know, in that sort of slight sort of demographic of, of people who are sort of central, you know, like, you know, sort of economically right, sort of socially liberal types. I think that's reasonably characteristic of a lot of people in marketing. Um, and But one of the people in my team, uh, I, unbeknownst to me, is absolutely out on the right wing, you know, not but in the sort of Clive Palmer, Alan Jones, but but like socially, but like economically, it's sort of like, you know, every each man for himself type thing. And you wouldn't know that from him, but it's great that you have someone who has a completely different way of coming at the world. You know, we might not think he's right. He doesn't think that we're right properly, but to have someone with a very different perspective, um, as long as, again, as long as they're not like, you know, corrosive to, to a team culture, then I love that. I love having, a really diverse team like we've most of our like there's probably only like four Aussies in our team out of 20 people you know everybody else has comes from you know they've got like two or three people Malaysian backgrounds uh Italian French uh, uh Brit like two Brits um El Salvador Mexico 
you know we've got a lot of different you know countries represented and that's different education systems giving people different ways of looking at problems you know at different ages different levels of experience different backgrounds um i think that's a real strength one thing that i learned from google and reading their book was i started hiring generalists people who sort of were really you know that they had skills like that the requirements were like that the, the tests i'd hire sort of these virtual assistants and i'll be like okay what are places you've traveled to what are some example of things you volunteer for hey based on when i sent you this message to when you replied the answer how long did that take so i'd ask these random questions and i've been just hiring generalists what are your thoughts on generalists and something that i learned from google um, uh, look i agree it, it's tempting in the hiring process i think to look at a cv and say does that cv align almost perfectly with the job description i one of the things i learned from google um in the hiring process was you know let, let's say my role in the hiring process was to test someone's you know sort of cognitive ability and so you give them a completely sort of um like invented but realistic scenario to kind of go through and you just want to see their thinking it's not something that you know you, you need to make sure it's not something that you know too much about because then your expectations of what they need to know will be too high probably so you know one example i used to use is you know you're setting up a business um for example you're setting up a um you know your, your friend is setting up wants to set up a, a business and they want to set up a coffee shop um so uh, they're asking you that they want to put a business plan together because they've got to go and speak to the bank to get a loan. Um, what are the things that you would look at as to the sort of the research that you would do to understand whether their coffee shop idea is good? And a lot of people were a bit flawed by that. And I sort of have to explain, like, it's, there's no right or wrong answers. I'm just, I just want to see how you think. Mm. And some people are so desperate to get to the answer. They think the answer is, to come up with the perfect business plan for the bank manager. The answer is, what are all the inputs that you need to consider? And then once you've got those inputs, you then go to the next phase. It's like, okay, so now that we've just, you've described to me that the, the price of coffee, the location, the type of clientele, the hours that you're gonna open, the other products you're gonna sell, you know, pro, you know cost of staff, you know, all these different things are, are important points. Um, you know, then what, then what you're going to do with that information. And some people just, they, they, they freeze because it's like they're, they've been taught to always have the right answer. And as you say, generalists don't. Generalists are sort of like, well, that's an interesting problem. This is how I would come at it. And, and you have some people um, try and tell you the right answer. Uh, and that's not good either, because in a, in, in a business, you'd rather people tell you the truth and be honest than tell you what you want to hear. Um, and then some people would over-engineer aspects of it. And so, you know, again, down to the pre-typing, it's, you know, I would do, I would, you know, go to Forrester and see if there's a report on the, you know, the cafe industry in Sydney or whatever. And you're like, okay, well, imagine there isn't. And they start to sort of go, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll Google it. And you're like, do you know what? The, the smartest people say the, the most important thing for a cafe is demand. How am I going to assess demand? Footfall past a particular location and then see what the competition is. If there's 20 cafes in that location by a station, like what's what are the line, what's the size of the queues? Just go and observe 
And then that's the thing that you need to tell your friend is go and observe. Like, so you want to be like a city center location, buy a station. Okay, so you're at, the hours you're operating are quite limited because it's commuting times. So you only need to go to those locations and see what the competition is, how many people are going past, and of the places that are there, like, is there a line of 20 people for coffees or is it like being served like, so they can, they can fulfill the demand straight away. I think generalists can get to that quite easily because they, they're not trying to leverage a knowledge stream that they can tap into. And that's why I think it's good to use, not, the, not I'm not like completely theoretical, like as in like the things that Google sometimes used to do in the past, like how many, you know, ping pong balls can you fit in a bath? It's like, okay, well, that's some sort of trigonometric maths question, really. Um, that's kind of, and why would you ever need to do it? So it needs to be something that's related to, we do have business problems. We do have to work our way around these things with, ambig with ambiguity and with, with little information. How are you going to get from a little information to something that's sensible? That sort of thing, I think, helped us. You know, I, 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 lots of people would, would really struggle in that environment. And maybe I turned down a lot of really amazing um, hires. Um, but I, I, the, of the people that we did hire, I do think we ended up with a, a lot of very, very good talent. I think you're right. Just asking the question and not about the answer they give, but how they break down the answer. Have them be like, okay, so first I would see what the bank would look for. Okay, I, now I'm thinking the bank will probably look for, you know, success probability, how much income would it make? How long will it take for them to um, be able to return the bank their money? Okay, how do we show a high success? And then as I'm breaking it down, I guess that's sort of what you would be looking for, someone that can break it down to you live and sort of go through it. And I think most people are scared to do that raw breakdown verbally out. Yeah, I, I have one guy that um, I asked him, like I said, you know, just to explain your thinking. And at the time it was quite in fashion, um, like, you know, have we reached peak oil? So I said, so he wanted just to answer the question. I said, no, no, I don't want you to answer the question. Mm. I want you to tell me how you would go about trying to, what are the different things that you would look for to be able to answer the question and gave him the whiteboard and the pen. And he just wrote down peak oil question mark and then sat down and tried to talk to him. I was like, no, I don't want the answer. I want you to sort of tell me what are the things that you know? Like if you don't know anything about that industry, then wh wh where would you get that information from? Mm -hmm. And then just, I said, just dot points. Like just, so if you don't know anything about it, say, right, what I would do is I would go to the um, OPEC website and understand and see if they've got papers on this. See, but he just literally just, he just like, I, I, I don't know how, I say, I just want to see how you think, that's all, and what your discovery process would be. And he just kept on sitting down and trying to, and unfolding his arms and trying to, like just saying, well, you know, you know, I, yes, we probably have reached peak oil. I was like, but but why do you why do you think that? And, he just, and then um, you know, and other candidate, other people on the interview panel had said, it, I just don't think like he's he's got an expertise in media buying. He's not like that's it. He's got that one skill. And then how do you go about with that recruit if they you know you're looking for media buying and was really really good at it? Was did he not pull through because he couldn't do that test? Well, yeah, I, I, it was and others. So, you know, there's, there's somebody else who's giving them scenarios of like, have you ever been in a situation where you've been in conflict with a colleague? How did you, what was the situation? You know, what was the core problem? How did you resolve it? What did you learn? Would you go and do the same thing differently or you know, all the same again? So you have other people, you know, with 
reasonably structured um, interview techniques to be able to sort of try and understand whether this person has been in different scenarios. And again, it's not, if you I mean, it's obviously if someone said, virtually every place I walk into, I'm in conflict with all of my colleagues, and you probably say, okay, maybe not for us. But most people have had some sort of conflict. It could be perfect. It might be a difference of opinion about a project, about um, hiring someone. Um, it could be about a promotion, a rating that someone's got, um, you know, uh, a, a salary package that someone's offered that you did, you know, whatever it happens to be, you can have a different opinion. We all have, um, you know, it'd be, a, it'd be a boring place if we all share the same ideas. And so you're looking for the people who are admitting that they have, they're able to sort of reflect and not just come up with the first thing, but kind of go, interesting, like, well, there was a situation where, you know, my boss wanted me to commit to a project and I just didn't believe in the project and everything, but I eventually did. You know, you want to see someone like almost discovering it with you and sharing that and then them be able to reflect kind of on the fly and also some of the sort of head on the pillow at night reflections that they've had about would they do things differently? Because then that shows the ability to kind of learn from mistakes and, and you know, deal with stress and things like that. Um, and so I, I think Google does have a very good, rigorous hiring process. Uh, it's often being criticized as being overly academic or um, formulaic, but I, I think by and large, it's served them very well. Yeah, one of the questions I was going to ask, but I think you sort of answered it, was I was going to ask like, would you hire people who are really, really good at that one thing, but lacked in those other skills? Now, and then I started thinking about my best hires. Usually, if someone's really good, they're usually rounded. Rarely do I find someone that is really good in one thing and, and bad at communication, bad at, you know, working on a team member. Like, that scenario never comes up, so I shouldn't be asking this question. No, I think, I mean, you should be able to screen for it. Um, you know, I have seen in my career people who were hired for a very like based sort of almost on their cv and their ability to walk themselves through their own cv which is obviously they've they defined the the you know the terms of reference they're going to talk to their terms of reference their cv and their experience they get hired and then you realize that they're actually not that great and they they've just and they themselves are actually stuck in a career and they don't know what to do because they're not that great in their career and they don't have the strength to re-educate themselves and to go on a training, you know, training course and completely pivot to something else. And those are the ones I think um, are the most, they're the most susceptible to when you look at a CV and you think, oh my God, that's exactly what we need. And then you go through the interview and you don't really ask those questions, the searching questions. You just really get them to repeat their CV to you, which they've obviously honed into the, the most perfect version of themselves. And then when you, you, they come into your business, they're just not that adaptable because it wasn't exactly like their last place, which by the way, it'd probably take them longer than average to master. So now they're going to take longer than average to master that environment. And once they do, then they're always going to give you the same consistent output. And in our industry, you know, in sort of in the tech space, like you can't, the thing that you did last year, you can't be still doing now. It's the world moves too fast. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. Like even if I hire someone that's really good at one thing, 
time changes and if they lack those other skills, they wouldn't have the skill to evolve. Um, last question, Conlon. What, you know, with all your years of experience working all these big companies, managing, you know, huge companies, a lot of team members, um, what do you see that us smaller businesses don't see? What questions should we be asking? Um, that is a great question that I don't really have a very good answer for. Um, because I think you guys are much better at so many things. It's just that you don't have the comfy umbrella of, of an organization that's already worked out almost exactly what its product offering is. It's so much easier to have joined a Google that had already worked that out. And then you are just there to go and help them execute it and take it to a really like schmick level. So on that, I would say actually when Miley Carnegie came in to Google Australia, she came in after, I don't know, let's say 30 years at Procter & Gamble. Now, Procter & Gamble is a very, very well-oiled machine like Persia would be, Toyota, etc. They are very slick manufacturing operations that are good at sales and marketing too. And so what Miley noticed is that lots of smaller, scrappier organizations are somewhat chaotic and poorly disciplined and organized because, and then she, this is, and I, the reason I'm telling you that is because about a year later, she realized that she'd introduced a whole load of process and admin into Google and had gone too far. And she recognized that what that's what Procter & Gamble had done. They used to be an amazing innovator. And when you were young and when I was even young, Procter & Gamble were constantly coming out with new products that addressed a certain thing. So even like Pantene as a shampoo, I remember when that sort of came out and was sort of addressing that need for like an everyday amazing shampoo that sort of made your hair feel glossy, blah, 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 blah. Now they stop innovating because everything is about efficiency. So I would say that as a small company, you are likely to be more chaotic and less efficient than a large established one. However, if you are growing and if you're in a space where you need to adapt all the time and and you're going for growth. So one, Andy, when you kind of find that amazing, like, um, pill to take in your business because it's like it's the right formula it's working um, I would not beat yourself up that you are slightly chaotic however I would bring in somebody into the organization who has worked in a very organized corporate environment who can bring a level of sanity to the chaos so like energy and adaptability and a little bit of chaos I think are good generally small businesses tend to lurch from one thing to the next because they're finding their way. But as you, and I think that's fine until you find that absolute, like here's the sweet spot. Then you need to start to hire in a couple of people who know how to like, like make that engine sing and, you know, just tune that engine beautifully, 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 but not to the point where it stifles everything, where there's no room for stepping outside of what has been defined. And I would say when I joined Critio, it had gone through that process of going through from a chaotic startup, high growth all over the place. It then over-engineered itself and then became too rigid and then has had to sort of tack back to a compromise between the two. So I don't know your business in detail, but I think typically small businesses tend to be 
a little bit chaotic and not as structured and planned and have enough processes. But then on the flip side, um, you know, then you can be in that overly planned. Got it. One thing that you mentioned was big businesses have things sort of figured out and then sort of they employ people to sort of make it better and then, you know, make it all shiny. Who are these people that can figure things out and, and build out, you know, a whole sales funnel that is profitable and, and, and turn, you know, leads into paying, like, who are these people that can build things out? And can I just hire one of them for, you know, $150,000 and have them build out like a funnel that makes up $500,000 a year? Um, yeah, look, I, so I've got, you know, someone in my team and I think we make a good partnership, although she might say otherwise. Um, and like, she's an, she's amazing at execution and doesn't have the, um, she's ambitious in her career, but is not the person who wants to be in the limelight. She wants to be the best kind of two I see the like the the, per, the person who has opinion on everything and therefore knows how the business needs to be and is not shy of saying what needs to be done but doesn't want to be the person up on stage and and collecting the awards at the ceremony and so you need that person who is I, I wouldn't even describe her as being introvert not at all I just think there's there are people who their um, satisfaction comes from um, a, a job well done rather than being constantly about, um, you know, moving on to the next thing. I'm, I'm guilty of having a lot of ideas and not the ability to pivot from my idea into executing it. And I think, you know, this person in my team that I'm sort of referring to, she'd be the first person to say, I've got plenty of ideas, but I don't know whether I enjoyed doing that. I'm much better at, at backing, listening to your idea giving helping you refine it and then turning into a in, into a thing and that's the i think the satisfaction that she gets which is um to you know make bring something to life and dare i say this is going to be a, a very sexist thing to say and hopefully it, it comes across in the right way but i think that typically women tend to be um like uh the the harshest um sort of self-critics and uh, and tend to be more perfectionists um, than men who tend to um, have a lot more confidence. And so it, I've often found in my career that I, I partner very well um, with women who are able to help me take my ideas in, and make them into reality. I, I hope, and maybe I'm not being very good at this, but I hope I've been able to help them progress in their careers without them needing to be that front person who's leading the flag and leading the charge. That's not to say that I've met plenty of women who can. It's just, I think, um, as a as a sort of sad thing, I think many women um, have a lot of self-doubt and so therefore tend to be very good at these things because they spot, they, they, they only want to move forward when they feel 150% confident in their abilities and therefore in that project's abilities to move ahead and therefore are able to take it and make it work really well. Whereas I think people like myself um, tend to be full of confidence and lack the uh, ability to scan the dangers on the horizon. Um, and so therefore my half-baked plan 
often doesn't come to fruition because I, I I'm not as used to checking it and checking it and checking it and then refining it and then putting it into practice. Um, so that's that's worked for me in my career, but that also might just be who I am and therefore who I who I best partner with. But it's something that I I, I I've seen quite a few times at a distance that. Um, men are good at talking a good game women are, uh, uh, can be equally good at talking a good game but they're often much better at putting it into practice yeah i think i can definitely attest to that because majority of my team members probably have like it's probably like 13 females and like seven males or even 14 six um and, and i do find that the women they're more they're sort of more steady they sort of do things that they're a bit more afraid to try new things but they're open to that feedback um where you know i would come and i'll be like hey we should do this that and that and they'll be totally open by it whereas the men they're sort of it takes me to repeat hey i think you should do this a few times for the to take it because there's a bit more of that ego but they're also willing to be adventurous on their own and try their own ideas so i definitely can attest to that I don't know what it is in society, and I'm not an anthropologist and, and behavioral psychologist, but I, I, there must be something um, probably in our society and education systems which lends itself to men are given more of a chance to um, have a go without having to prove themselves and then be, you know, patted on the back and rewarded for, for trying. Um, and uh, women tend to sit back more i'm not saying everyone but tend to sit back more and wait to be sort of tapped on the shoulders to sort of say i think you're ready for promotion i, I remember there was a study done at google where they um, particularly in the engineering community they um, automatically allowed people to nominate themselves for promotion and they had to, and for, for females they noticed that males by far and away outnumbered the num you know as a percentage more put themselves forward for promotion so when they introduced that scheme they actually had to send out notes to female staff to say don't forget to put yourself forward for promotion you may be more ready than you think and i think that's i mean it's 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 kind of cute and it's sweet but on the on the flip side if we're being you know uh, harsh with ourselves we probably um listen um are very tempted to listen to the confidence of a of a male with a good idea uh, and uh, and who they are and what they want in life and and not necessarily ready for a female to be as um, pushy um so that's that's something that i need to always try and remember is that uh, and you know i i've been caught out um so i'm far from perfect where you know i've had male people you know male members of the team come to me and say when am i when am i going to get promoted when's the next opportunity and things like that and then you feel like you have to address that meanwhile there's a bunch of very hard working very competent um extremely smart um women who are not making the same demands and it's easy to overlook them so that's another i think that's another blind spot sort of conscious bias that i know that i'm guilty of and so i try to uh, you know be remind myself but it's still be a damn sight better so right because there's this sort of conservative nature where they haven't been you know it's only in the last half a decade uh, like five half a century that women have been really into the workforce and you know they've just gotten here they don't want to you know they're a bit more worried to raise their hand and and that definitely does get overlooked you're 100 percent right um 
your sort of right hand woman, where she's sort of the person that executes on a lot of your ideas, what keyword should I be looking for on LinkedIn? Is it people with operational, like op, do I search operational managers? What type of people are the type of people that can build out systems and figure things out? Um, then you can, you know, you know, fit people in. Yeah, look, I, I, if I sort of think about some of the either the roles or the types of things and the experience, I think that is more reflective of what you might be looking for. So, people who have been, you know, like you know, chief of staff, um, you know, head of um, strategy and ops and those sort of things. The people who are um, like in their CV, it is probably less about shouting about the revenue and the targets that they've hit, although those things are obviously important. But let's be honest, in a CV, most people, I'm not saying they lie, but they tend to sort of exaggerate those those things. I don't I don't ever remember seeing a CV where someone said, I, I, I usually get about 70% of my you know targets. Um, so you know you you will tend to see that more in a male CV, but I would I would argue, um, uh, or, or people who are in sales because they know how to kind of oversell themselves. So I would say that you'll probably like to see you know initiated this project, you know, got launched something, um, you know, uh, embedded a new process in the organisation. It's those things, or you you know, obviously when you get to interview them then actually get them to go through the boring and minute detail sometimes of a project they've worked on. And then you can see whether they were the passenger, the one that, like me, the, the person who had the ideas or the person who actually put it all together. Um, and when you ask them like, well, why did you do that? Why didn't you go with this vendor? And, and, and then they've got the answer. They're like, well, we went through a process and we had four people in and, you know, you, you can see when they're, when they're, when people, are detail oriented enough that they know exactly what the objective was and they were able to start off with you know maybe an ambiguous process and then go through a rigorous selection uh, procedure to uh, and testing and everything to get to the outcome um and those are the people that you then sort of say and you have ideas because you don't want someone who's just going to execute on everybody else's ideas and never have one themselves and that's certainly not true for the person that i'm talking about this person's got loads of ideas they're just very comfortable in ref helping you refine yours with their ideas rather than be the person who goes it's my idea or nothing um because there's a lot of people you know like we are now and i'm very very guilty of, of being armchair generals of knowing how the world should work but they're actually not very good at doing it you know of which you know, Putin's probably a great example right now. Um, knows what they want, knows what the idea was, doesn't know how to execute it, and doesn't have a bunch of people around him, in this case, who really do know how to execute it with calamitous results. So, um, you know, on a sort of lighter note, um, it, 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 you need a balance of people, but I think we, we tend to over-index to the people who shout from the rooftops about what they can do, rather than actually look for the evidence of what people actually do. Now, these people that often initiate and launch different systems and projects, do they usually have like chief of staff, um, head of strategy in their sort of LinkedIn sort of job description? Yeah, well, like, you know, it will have like, you know, strategy, operations, um, you know, organization, you know, 
team management, um, you know, or, and to be honest, like some of the best people learned their craft, you know, in our industry, they, they learned their craft through things like being account managers and account coordinators and things like that. And you, you want to sort of see the evidence that they've, they've, the reason that they've progressed from one thing to another is because they've absolutely nailed their role. And if it's not evident within the CV and you speak to them, they can talk to you about why they were the best account, you know, a campaign manager working for, in our, in our minders' case, like, you know, as a, you know, at a media agency and they're, a, you know, campaign, you know, a manager or, you know, uh, account coordinator or something. And if they can tell you what they did and they, if they are focusing on, the, the the person they spoke to the deal they did rather than what i did was introduce a new process for you know pipeline management or whatever what i realized is that the team as a whole was you know doing blah 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 that's the, that's the difference is um a, a level of like rigor and detail and determination to achieve i wouldn't say perfection but achieve like a really schmick outcome like outcomes focused uh, and real outcomes, not just like a number, but detail in the outcomes rather than, you know, here's all the things that I did, all the inputs, like just, okay, what did you achieve? Okay, I set up a new, you know, uh, part of the website which dealt with returns because, you know, and it's like, okay, well, tell me, so what was the problem on returns? Okay, we were having a whole load of, you know, stuff dumped back at the, you know, front office desk because people didn't know where to return stuff to or we were having lots of complaint. They'll be able to tell you that how they diagnose it and how they completely change the process and were able to completely re-engineer that so that it all worked. And then the vendors that they pulled in for the platform, why did you, okay, so why did you choose that software for, for returns? Why didn't you choose another one? They're able to tell you all the different people they met, the different bits of research that they did to arrive at the best outcome. Beautiful. Conlon, I, I really appreciate your time today. Where can people find out more about what you're doing, get those articles you're sharing? What's the best place for people um, to get in contact with you and see what you're doing? Reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm, you know, um, I, I'm generally will accept, you know, most people's uh, requests to connect. You know, if, if all that you want to do is tap into my network, um, you know, that's absolutely fine. I am you know, I've been helped a lot on my way up through my career, so I'm more than happy to help people who are trying to reach out in the first place to, to people in my network. Um, you know, I do post stuff from time to time. Um, you know, feel free to follow me. Um, feel free to argue with me um, in my posts, whatever. Um, you know, and um, you know, go online, have a have an opinion. Contact Andy. <laughs> Thank you so much, Connor. Like, I had a blast. I just love how you're, like, really, really knowledgeable. You have this sort of breadth of knowledge. And, and as a managing director, you know, CEO, you sort of know a bit about everything. And it, I can definitely tell, like, my piece of paper, I've written, like, every single, like, I, I wrote a bunch of little things, all these questions. Um, and, you know, you have this sort of humble nature where, you know, you definitely have that Google spirit where you're sort of just down to earth. And, you're constantly always learning and I can just, I can just, you know, taste that. Look, I mean, I've, I've been very fortunate to work with, and I'm not, this is platitudes. I've genuinely learned of so many amazing people um, and met amazing people like yourself, I think, like we just met at an event and I was just really blown away by the way that you tackle the little challenge, the debating challenge 
and how sort of plucky and fun you were in doing it and and how generous you were to the other team um who you were arguing against um and you know i i wish you really you know the best of luck with studying.com i think you are a genuinely you know, a, a brave, entrepreneurial, innovative person. Um, so, you know, good things happen to good people. And I know that you'll be successful, you know, in whatever it is that you do. And some things you just um, will just take off and rip like crazy. And that's true for everyone. And some things will be hard yards and then we'll we'll, we'll mess up on some things and make the wrong decisions and but just learn from it. Thank you so much, Carmen. I really appreciate that. I, I just love your kindness and, and energy and yeah this was a great freaking episode i know this this is i think this might be one of the longest episodes i've always wanted a long episode but i haven't found someone that i can sort of juggle and go back and forth with this long so this this is you know one of i I had fun on this episode i really really enjoyed our chat and you know like as you probably realized when you first got to meet me like give me a Give me a platform and you can't shut me up. So uh, the easiest way to shut me up is just put a drink in my hand and then I'll be uh, swallowing from that. So uh, as a tip and as a piece of advice, if you want to meet me, then um, buy me a drink. Most definitely. Thank you so much, Conlon. And thank you so much if you've made it this far. I really appreciate you guys for listening to this episode. Hopefully you guys got some value and learned something new. And yeah, we'll see you guys next week on the podcast again. Hope you guys have an amazing day and we'll see you guys next week. Peace.